Lord, as we come to your word, I pray, God, that we would humble ourselves before your voice, before your word. And Lord, I pray today that we would see the connection between your word and this issue of spiritual rest. Lord, help us to discern clearly today as we look at your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that these truths that I'm seeking to communicate to others would be something that I experience and live out of. Lord, I pray that today you would do a work that, that no one could take the credit for. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would be changed. Lord, guide us through this passage. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you got your Bibles today, if you'd open up to Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews chapter four. If you are a guest with us today, we're so glad you're here. We've been looking at a series in Hebrews. And the title of the series is The Supremacy of Jesus, that Jesus is greater. We're in a letter of the Bible where we look at an issue of the author writing to a group of people who are tempted in their Judaism to go back towards it. They've been saved out of Judaism into Christianity. And, and there's those within the body of Christ that he writes to that are tempted to leave it because it's getting hard. Their property had been plundered. Some of them were worried about their future. They were worried about being martyred for the faith. And so he opens up this, this book and he shows us in chapter one, the supremacy of Christ. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He is the perfect son of God. He is the God man. He's full deity. He's full humanity. And he moves from greater than the prophets and greater than the angels. And then he gets into chapter three and he says, look, if there's someone that you would revere, it would be Moses, but he's greater than Moses. He is the prophet that Moses spoke of that would come that would be greater than him. And as he moves out of chapter three into chapter four, we see even more allusions to the Old Testament. He's greater than Joshua. And he begins to speak about this spiritual rest. And last week we saw that there's many different kinds of rest that he speaks of. As we move into chapter four, he speaks about a creation rest. If you've read your Bible in Genesis, you see in Genesis chapter two, that after God created everything, he rested it's a rest that he established. It's a rest that he came up with. And so we saw that type of rest. We also saw that there is a promised land rest. When you read the Old Testament and you read about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and you read about the plagues and the Passover and the splitting of the sea and you read about them wandering in the wilderness and they refused to believe and because of their belief, they didn't enter the land. And that is becoming the passage, that Psalm 95 verse 7 through 11 is becoming the text that the author of Hebrews is saying, look, don't harden your hearts like the children of Israel did. Don't harden your hearts. Instead of just hearing the good news like they did, you hear the good news but respond with belief. And that's the call. But you see, they didn't enter the land, but who did? Moses had a follower named Joshua. 
And Joshua was the leader of the people of Israel when they went into the land of Canaan. But the point that the author of Hebrews is making is like, even though that was grand and even though that was great, it wasn't the fulfillment. Joshua wasn't the fulfillment of spiritual rest. It was a picture of it, but it wasn't the one that they were to experience or we are going to experience that we have experienced because of Christ. The third type of rest that he speaks of is the Sabbath rest. And he mentions that, and it's as if now he's saying, look, the Sabbath rest is for the people of God who have ceased to work and have trusted in his work. This morning as we get started, when you think about being right with God, what emphasis do you think about? Do you think about your work or do you think about the work of Christ? You see, for the Christian, we can't earn the favor of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We cease from our works, but there's a sense that even though we now positionally are at rest, because I don't trust in my work, I trust in his work, I'm now daily invited to walk in that Sabbath rest. I'm daily invited to practically walk in his rest as I trust God, as I trust his promises, as I trust his power. I wonder how many opportunities you've had this last week to walk in the rest that God's given you in Jesus Christ. Recently, I was in a situation with different people and I found myself frustrated and I found myself irritated. You ever get irritated? Not you. I know y'all never get irritated, but uh, I found myself frustrated And and immediately, it was as if the Spirit was bringing to my mind what we're studying in Hebrews. And I started thinking about it. Wait a minute. What is the invitation that I have right now to experience the rest of Christ? And I was thinking, you know what? Rather than being irritated and frustrated and agitated and annoyed, I can rest in Jesus's kindness. I can rest in his patience. I can rest in his wisdom because he calls me not to respond that way. And if he tells me not to respond that way, I can rest in the fact that he's wiser than me. I can rest in the fact that God sovereignly has these people in my life right now. Do you see where I'm going with this? You can literally have an invitation to walk in the rest of Christ Everywhere you go in your life, it's abiding in Jesus. It's not just rest that you experience when you got saved, it's a rest that you live out of because no longer are you striving according to your works. You're resting in his work. And now the Christian life's a journey of walking and abiding with Christ. And so he calls them to these things. But today what we're gonna see is a new idea that he brings up. He connects it somewhere else. The title of the message today is Spiritual Rest and the Word of God. Spiritual rest and the word of God. Let's read verse 11 down to verse 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Today, I think what we're going to see is the author calling 
us to two urgent responses. Two urgent responses as we look at this passage. So today we have a place to respond in this. When we jump into verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. The first response he calls us to is take heed to the command. Take heed to the command. The word heed is the idea of paying attention to something. It's like, be serious about this. It's, it's, it, we've talked about this often, and now I'm reminded of it because I've got six kids. But how many times I look at my kids and I say, listen to me. Listen, are you listening? Are you listening? Yes, I'm listening. Are you listening? Really listening? Yes, I'm listening. I got to ask that question more than any kid has ever lived. I know you'd never figure out why. And, but, but, but understand the urgency. I heard uh, one of my favorite preachers is Alistair Begg. And, and I was listening to his thoughts on this. And he said, he, he, he likened this to, have you been on an airplane before? Some of you hadn't been on one in a while, but I, I did fly to Montana in August of last year. And when I was on that plane, you know what happens. You get there, and I'm usually like looking for open seats because they make those seats for people that are like four foot nine. And, um, and I can't move, and I don't have any room with my legs. And I'm always looking, and I can't wait till they get near the door and they shut that thing, and I start moving. I start moving where there's two seats. And, and I'm always like, one, and I've moved before. You ever done this? You've moved, and then somebody gets on the plane with 20 seconds to spare, and you know they're coming right where you are. Unbelievable. But you know what? You get there and then at that door, what happens? The flight attendant, male or female, gets in the aisle and goes through these safety warnings, right? Now, how many of you be honest that uh, you tend not to listen during that time? Come on, be honest. Chase is being honest. I understand what he's saying. Like, yeah, I mean, that's usually where I look down and I'm usually wanting to be on an exit row. So you got to at least act like you're listening. They say, look at me, and you look them in the eye, and I'm thinking, I'm not listening. And you're looking at them, and they're going through everything. But, but Pastor Begg made a comment, and I can relate. He said, usually when the flight attendant says, now look and notice where the emergency exits are. How many people on the plane actually look? Not many. But every once in a while, there's a sweet little old lady and you'll see her, and she by, she's looking around, and she is noticing. I mean, she's looking, and she's watching, and she's aware. And he went on to say, you know what? If that flight goes off the runway, the only person worth anything is that little old lady because she knows exactly what to do, right? And today, I want to caution you. There's a tendency when we come to the warning passages for people to act as if they do not apply to them. Don't check out. As we've seen already, those that are truly in Christ, your salvation is not up in the air. The Lord Jesus Christ is faithful not only to call you, but to save you. We've looked at that. We've established that. But there's a danger of self-deception. There's a danger of people that profess something they do not possess. First John says the only people that commit apostasy are the people that went out from us to reveal that not all are of us. And so today, what do we do? How do we guard ourselves from self-deception? We have to pay attention. And he begins by saying, let us therefore. What is the therefore for? 
He's just told us about what? The unbelief of the Israelites. They heard the good news, but how did they respond? They responded in unbelief. Let us not be like them. Let us hear God's word and rather than receive it with unbelief, let's respond with belief. This morning, as we are looking at this text, understand the urgency of the context even is calling us to seek to actively obey God's word right now. That's why when you look at a worship service, the worship doesn't stop with the singing, the worship continues on. Because what we're doing right now is an opportunity for corporate worship. Because corporate worship takes place in the preaching of God's word when people hear God's word with faith. When they hear God's word with belief, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. The word strive means be diligent, labor, labor after this, examine yourselves. Immediately some passages came to mind in looking at just cross-references here, and some resonated with me. One was John 6, verse 27. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Another passage that resonated with me in regards to this context is where Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Second Peter chapter one, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And one of the things that happens, I firmly believe, God uses the warning passages not only to call people that are on the fence of saving faith to trust in Christ and to see their spiritual state, but it also, they're also used by the Holy Spirit to urge and compel Christians to live out of the reality of who they are in Christ. So today, let's not neglect them. Let's look at it. Let's focus on it. Let's strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Diligent, earnestness, eagerness. I like one man's comments here. Tony Marita says, we must strive to enter God's rest. It sounds like a uh, oxymoron, doesn't it? Strive to rest? You're thinking, well, how does that work? He says, in other words, we must work at resting. This means we must work against all of our efforts to prove our righteousness. We must strive against all our efforts to justify ourselves. Another aspect of this, I would add, would be strive to actively obey. Strive to trust. Strive to depend. Do you see how it's a good exercise daily to be reminded of the need to depend on Christ in the circumstances and situations we face? Do you ever find yourself with a disconnect from when you leave church until you get to church the next week and you forget the fact that every part of my life is an invitation to trust God, an invitation to rest in his promise, an invitation to rest in his provision? 
You see, this morning, you may not be thinking of life like that. You may be thinking of just more of a detached type of living where life's hard. Of course, I'm going to respond that way. You don't understand that person. Things are stressful. I'm just stressed. Things are hard. That person deserved that because that's just the way they are. And you go, wait a minute. How does God's word call you to respond in, in accordance with who you are and who he's made you? How are you to live? Strive to enter. And I want us to keep our eye on this today because he's using the Old Testament. He's using this story of Israel in the wilderness and their disbelief. And it reminds me of 1 Corinthians. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We've got to keep our mind on that. And, and, and what did Jesus say was the ultimate work? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. If there's anything we need to fear when looking at this passage, I was looking with the first group. If you go back to chapter three, verse one, the one thing you can be comforted by is that those who are truly in Christ, their salvation is not in jeopardy. Look at verse one of chapter three. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a what? Heavenly calling. This is secure. This is yours in Christ. But if we're to fear anything, what are we to fear? We're to fear unbelief. We're to fear unbelieving, disobedience. Unbelief is what we're to fear. Because I think what happens sometimes is we take that which is the exception and we make it the rule. And I think sometimes, I don't know if you'd agree with me, but in my perspective of communities like this all across the world, where the Bible is prevalent and the Bible is available. And typically those communities really are only in America. What, what happens is, is that sometimes the exception is looked at as obedience. The exception is looked at as faith. And we look at more the norm as disobedience, as turning away. And we almost say that's what's to be expected, not following and trusting God. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, look, fear unbelief. Be reminded that the normal rhythm, the normal posture of the Christian is faith and repentance. The normal rhythm of the Christian is to be belief and be cautious lest you live with an unbelieving heart. When we think about this emphasis on obeying, and we think about this warning here in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I want to remind you how disobedience is a key theme when it comes to our life in Adam before Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. 1 and 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of what? Disobedience. 
Disobedience is the characteristic of the people who are lost in Adam. You may be like, what in the world does that mean? In Adam or in Christ? Well, think about it. If, if you do not know Jesus Christ and have not entered into the rest that he offers in his salvation, you are what the Bible refers to as in Adam. That's your connection. That's your identity as to who you are. But there's a miracle that takes place. Colossians says when we believe on Jesus and we trust in him and we cease to work from, we, we rest from our works and trust in his work, what happens is we are literally experiencing a transferal from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. We go from literally being in Adam to being in Christ. You see, when we are in Adam, we are attached to all of the realities of what it means to be in Adam. And what does that mean? That means that when one man sinned, sin entered the world and death spread to all men because all sinned. Think about all of the consequences of being under Adam and connected there. But what happens by the miracle of resting in Jesus's work and not our own, we go to being in Christ. And now, rather than being attached to the consequences that Adam must bear, we are now attached to the blessings that Christ Jesus gives us. And it's, it's what theologians refer to as being in union with Jesus. That's a big term, but it simply means if you've believed in Jesus, and you're resting in his work, you receive all the spiritual benefits because you're now connected to Christ. But you know what? Those that are in Adam, those that are connected to him, they're marked by a consequence of living and they're marked by their disobedience. That's not who we are in Christ. Another passage that demonstrates this, Ephesians 5. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon whom? The sons of disobedience. You can see it in Romans 11, verse 30 to 32. There's a lot of passages. Look at Titus 1, Titus 1, 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Titus chapter three covers this. And the point being is this, is like, look, understand unbelief moves in a direction contrary to the ways of God. Unbelief marks the people that are in Adam, not the people who are in Christ. And so what is the danger here? The danger is that we would grow apathetic in our Christian life and that we would not see the urgency to walk in belief. I love what Paul says in Colossians. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. I wanna ask you a question this morning. How did you receive Christ? I love doing this with groups. And they'll say things like, I received him in trust. I received him in humility. I received him in dependence. I received him by faith. I received him not of my own, but by his work. I received him in this attitude of meekness and, and a willingness to follow him. And what is Paul saying? He's saying, look, the ebb and the flow and the rhythm and the posture of the Christian. I pray that, that our, our, our children and our young people could understand this. Teenagers. Because Christianity is not just a ethic. Christianity is not just a system of belief. Christianity 
is a life of abiding in Jesus. Christianity is, is following Christ. Christianity is walking by faith. Christianity is believing in God, being persuaded by his word. And here's the danger. The danger is this. There's people that are in church weekly that have never understood that. And they've associated themselves with an external form of religion, but have never followed Christ in their heart. And the word of God literally has no impact on their day-to-day -day life. None. They profess Christ. They align themselves with the people of God. But just like the people of Israel, their lives are marked by disobedience. So what is this urging the people to do? He's saying, look, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't be like those people in Israel who disobeyed. You be people who walk actively and enter into God's rest. You walk in it. You live by it. You abide in it. This is the call that he gives. You know, a good question as we look at this, and we're going to see this develop, is like, how is the word of God directing your behavior? How is the word of God? You remember in, in the context, what he's been mentioning over and over and over is he's been mentioning today, if you hear his voice, I got a question for you. How have you heard God speak this last week in his word? Are you actively listening for the voice of God in his word? And I'm not talking about a subjective, mystical, in my mind, I have these thoughts and these words. I'm speaking about humbling myself before the word of God in which the spirit bears witness with my spirit as he reveals to me the condition of my heart and invites me to walk in belief. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is walking with God. The Christian life is a journey. The Christian life is abiding. It's not empty profession and disobedience. That's not the Christian life. He keeps going here, though. The second call of urgence. He says, look, take heed to the command. Make every effort. Strive to enter the rest, lest you fall like they did. But then what does he do? I think he calls them here to response of submission to the power of the word. I've used this example, if you know me over the years, where it's easy, isn't it, to uh, have like refrigerator verses where they're, they're great verses, but we sort of lose the context of how they're used. This is one of those refrigerator verses. And, and I, I've used this passage probably over 100 times since I've been here at Riverside at different times, if you could take every time I've mentioned Hebrews 4 through 12, it's probably 150 times or more. But I'll be honest with you. This is a great example. I don't think I've ever really understood the context like I do now. And it's a good reminder, isn't it? it, it the truth is a principle that will relate to anything about, it's a statement about the word of God, but I don't believe it's in isolation. I was listening to a guy as I was on the lawnmower, and um, a little hard to hear him, but I was listening to him. And, and he made the comment, he said, you know, we get, to verse, we get to verse 11, and now the author of Hebrews transitions, and he speaks about something over here. I couldn't agree, disagree more. This is not in isolation. He uses this in a flow. Now, first of all, understand something. What he's done is he's using the Old Testament as a way for their learning. And what has he done? If, if you got a pen and you want to look at these later, I'm going to go through them fast. We're not going to read them. 
He's referenced Psalm 95, verse 7 through 10. He's referenced Exodus 17, verse 7. He's referenced Numbers chapter 14, verse 21 through 23, as he speaks about the children of Israel. Numbers 14, 32, as he mentioned God's creation rest, Genesis chapter two, verse two, as he mentioned Joshua coming into the land, Deuteronomy 31, verse seven, Joshua 22, verse four. And what he's doing is he's laying out the word that God has given, and now he's showing us that God reveals to us the reality of where we are in the journey with him through his word, through his word. Today, if you, and again, the invitation goes back to what? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Again, there's an invitation here right now. You're listening pretty well right now. I applaud you. And, uh, but, but here's the question. Right now, it's as if the author would step in and say, but you're not being tested on how you're listening. You're being tested by whether or not you're hearing the word in response with belief. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, look, if you hear his voice, respond, because there's a danger of self-deception. There's a danger of people that simply do not get it, and they never walk by faith. But what does he do? Verse 12, the word of God is living inactive, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, now think with me here. This is amazing. How are we going to come to a real sense of whether or not positionally, what I mean by positionally is how God sees me. Am I in Adam or am I in Christ? And how am I really going to determine and discern that? How does the Spirit make that known? He makes it known through his word. But on the other side, for the Christian, how does he reveal to me my fellowship with him and whether or not I'm practically walking out of the rest he's given me in Christ? How does he show me through his word? What does he say about the word? For the word of God is living and active, sharper, Then any two-edged sword, right off the bat, he speaks about the living nature of the word. I love this quote. Kent Hughes is awesome. He's like a preacher to preachers, and he says things so wonderfully, and I love this. He says, the word of God is living and active. It lives because it endures forever. Even more, it lives because it has life in itself. God is living, and the word as God's breath partakes of God's living character. It is alive. It's alive. It's not a book written by a bunch of dead men. It's not a book written with great motivational, devotional thoughts. It is the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. It is God breathed. God has spoken when we read his word. You see, this is critical. Living, it's the word enduring. It's alive. The living God, now think about this, dead religion has no power. It's empty words. This ties to me back to the, the reality of our triune God, even through the resurrection, demonstrates the, the life of Christ, the life of his resurrection power. The word of God is alive. It endures it endures. It's active. It means to be at work. I, I was looking here, and 
when we think about the life of the word of God, you remember what Isaiah 55 says in Isaiah 55, if I can find it here, it says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. How can that be? The word of God is living. It's living, but then it's active. It's active. What does active mean? It it speaks of the fact that it's at work. It's at work. It's actively at work. One fascinating area, and you got to be a little careful with classical Greek because often it's not the meaning of the word, but it's very interesting here. It was used in medical terms, to treat illness, this word. Medical terms to treat illness. You go to the doctor and the doctor says, you're sick. And you say, how can you help me get better? And often the doctor gives you what? Medicine. What is the prescription for spiritual sickness that God so often works through. He works through the power of the active word. The word works like spiritual medicine. It's active. It's active. It, it, it does what it's supposed to do. It, um, it, it's effective. It, it fulfills the purpose for what it's supposed to accomplish. He keeps going here. It's living and active. Um, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's penetrating. It's penetrating. It, 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 it works in a way that it can cut. How many of you have ever bought, how many have bought like, you know, razors where they've got plastic so tight on there that it's literally impossible to open it without a knife that comes from Costco or something, you know? And, and like, I'll never have a knife on me. And I've got my keys, and I'm like, and sometimes it can't, you can't even get the keys to puncture that plastic. You can't get it. It is so frustrating. Have you ever had that happen? Am I the only one up here that is struggling so deeply? And you're just pulling at it and pulling at it. That's not the way God's word is. I tell you, we treat it like it is sometimes. We treat it like that in the pulpit. We'd rather entertain people, play, you know, show smoke and have really neat little sermons, you know, sermonettes for Christianettes, you know, and and have little bitty, why why would a man stand behind a pulpit and preach from a book for 45 minutes? It better be because he realizes he has no power in himself to literally change anything. You see, a lot of times we, we understand whether or not we see the word sufficient as to how we use it. But what is it saying here? The word of God is living and it's active and it's able to penetrate through where it needs to go. It's not going to be hindered. I love this because God's word does things. And you think immediately, you go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's the safeguard? What's the safeguard? How do I know if I'm walking in spiritual rest? How can I know for certain of really where I'm at, if I'm going to examine my election and my calling, how do I do that? Well, the Holy Spirit speaks through his word. 
And, and the greatest recipe to see this happen, uh, Abigail is a great little cook in our house, and she's cooking stuff all the time. I love it because I get to eat it. And she puts all these ingredients together. You know the ingredients we need here? We need the word of God, but what do we need? We need meekness and humility in hearing it. And if we pair meekness and humility with the power of the spirit working in the word, what happens? God begins to do a work within us. It penetrates. I was telling the first group this story and I messed it. I messed it up bad. I told them, I was like, I think I remember this. And I didn't. It was rough. Just don't tell them. Uh, it was a story about George Whitfield, but I got it wrong. George Whitfield was often uh, made fun of and mocked. And uh, it wasn't his brother, but on one occasion, there was a guy named Thorpe, and he would mimic Whitfield. Have you ever, uh, growing up, I used to always copy my sister. You know, it's annoying. I was like, you know, four, five, 19, 20 years old, and, <laughs> and, uh, and she'd say anything, and I would just repeat her. And then they say, stop repeating me, stop repeating me. I'm going to tell mom. I'm going to tell mom. And it just gets annoying. And then you literally just go crazy. You're like, stop. It's not funny. It's not funny. You know, he keeps going. You've been there. Y'all are laughing because y'all have done it. And, but that's what they were doing to Whitfield. And Thorpe was mimicking him. I want you to hear this. This, this moves me. Thorpe was mimicking him. And, 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 and he, he, to mimic Whitfield, he would memorize his sermons and he would memorize them so he could mock him. And he would say the sermon with accuracy. And Hugh says, perfectly imitating his tone and his facial expressions. And one day the story goes that while he was doing that, he was mimicking his sermon. He was quoting from the scripture that he was so moved and touched by what he was seeking to mimic Whitfield in. They said that he sat down in a chair as if with the holy fear and his facial expression changed. And the story goes, Thorpe said, in that moment, I was converted. The living and the active power of the word of God. You see, if we believe salvation's up to us, all we will do is seek to prey upon the emotions of people. But if we have trust that God is the only one that can open the heart, it sets us free to recognize we still urge people to come. But in the urging, we're confident that what they need is not our best attempt to pull them. What they need is God's word. God's word is active. It's penetrating. It's powerful. It penetrates through. That's what Thorpe experienced and if you're here today as a Christian, it's something that you've experienced before. But it's a discerning word. You may be thinking, how in the world can I really know what my heart's like? How in the world can I really know what my motives are? Have you, I think you get a little bit older and you realize there's many times in your life that you look back on and you go, man, I, I thought I had an intent to do something this way, but I think looking back on it, my intent was completely wrong. Have you ever had that happen? The older you get, you recognize that sometimes even your best attempts at goodness are marred in self-righteousness or marred in uh, manipulative type greed or manipulative guile. And you go, how in the world can I get to this place? Who can show me? Who can reveal my heart? If there's deception that takes place with Israel, how may I not guard against that? You know, how can I guard against that self-deception? 
Well, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates and cuts through. He talks about soul, spirit, joints, marrow. It's powerful to cut through. And then he says, it discerns the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. It discerns them. It, It shows who we are. It reveals to us what our thought processes are. Only God's word can do that. We look at this and it's like we need God to do spiritual surgery on our hearts where he reveals to us who we really are. We need God to do spiritual surgery on our hearts. The goal is not to have motivation where we feel better about our spiritual life, where we get something that will take us through the week, where we have a, you know, a, great, a great motivation. No, what we need is we need God to show us who we are. And if we're going to strive to enter that rest, it will not take place apart from his divine truth with the power of the spirit working through that truth to show us who we really are. And friend, I think that you've experienced it, but you can all acknowledge the fact that that God's word pierces us. You could go back if we went around the room and said, how are you saved? Precious Judy Riley was in the opening service today and and I love her. I mean, if you don't like Judy Riley, something's wrong with you. And, uh, And Judy one time was telling me a story and she said, Stephen, I got saved by, I picked up a Gideon's Bible and I started reading it. And she said, the Lord saved me. I believed on him. I trusted. You see, we went around the room today and I said, how did you come to know Christ? You would be a living testimony to this point. But I want to ask you something today, Christians that are here. Christians, how has God's word penetrated and discerned your thoughts, shown its living and active power in your sanctification as a Christian? But let me go one step further. How has he done that over the last few days? How has he done that over the last week? How is he speaking to you through his word? At this point, it's sobering, isn't it? Because so often in our spiritual journey, I can't point fingers at you. So often in our spiritual journey, we say, if you say, how has God spoken to you, young man? Or, you know, sir, well, A few years ago, I was in the word. You know what we need to pray for and long for? That we daily are coming in humility up under the power of the truth. You see, here's the danger. People that literally are living in unbelief, removed from the power of the word, who live in existence in their spiritual sense, completely deceived as to who they are and what's needed, what's needed desperately. Hear the word with belief, but place yourself in humility up under that word on a regular basis, sensitive to the pruning and the discipline and the reproval of Christ through the power of the spirit. You see, when we look at the word, there's so many things that we learn. We learn that this word is a reproving word. You see, 2 Timothy says, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I've got a, I rented a car to go to Asheville today and uh, man, it's nice. I may not give it back. I don't want to pay for it though. And uh, it's really nice, but it's, it's amazing. It sort of messes you up because you get used to your 2012 and then you realize cars have advanced. And uh, 
And it's got so many things in it. I just sat in the parking lot out in front of McDonald's last night and played with it. I was just like looking around. This is so cool. I felt like Ben of the new Lego. And, but it's got the biggest GPS screen. And if you're going down the road, and today if I miss my turn up by Knoxville to go towards Asheville, what's gonna happen? It's gonna alert me. You're off the track. Do you realize that, that for those are who are in Christ Jesus, the means by which the Spirit reveals to you that you are out of the rest of God is that his word reproves you. This is, the, this is marriage 101. A lot of people go to marriage counseling because they want a better marriage, but they don't want to hear the advice that scripture gives about life. They just want God to help their marriage. But what is, what is marriage 101? Marriage 101, parenting 101, being a teenager 101, being a, anybody in the world is daily just humbling myself before God and saying, dear God, show me how to live. Understanding that I had to cease from my work to rest in yours. It has to be by your grace, by your spirit. But oh God, because I'm now yoked to you, and your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Now, only by your grace and your strength can you guide me. But God, show me how to live. This is what happens. I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm over-talking this this morning, but I really feel passionate about this. It's like, this is, think about it, Christian teenager, 16, 17 years old. What does it mean to walk with God? It's daily, God, guide me, teach me, help me to work it never resting in my work, but only resting in yours. And God, would you guide me and show me how to live? Would you show me the reality of my heart? Would you show me what's happening? I'm telling you, th this is why you look in the Old Testament and see a guy like Daniel looked at as a godly young man. Why? He had a humble heart before God. You see, th this is walking with God. It's receiving God's word with faith. It says, God reveals to you, you're off track. What do you do? You have to go to that person. You go to your mom and say, you know what? I sinned against you with my attitude. You go to your kid. I was wrong in the way I corrected you. I, I, I provoked you. You go to your wife. You know what? What I said to you just now is flesh. It's sin. It's wrong. Will you forgive me? Why? Because I'm hearing the good news and I'm receiving it with what? Belief. I'm hearing it and I'm being changed by it and I'm humbling myself before it. You see, he goes on. You could look at another passage. I'm just gonna show you one more. There's the sanctifying word in John 17, 17. But notice this one. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Notice what he says at the end there which is able to save your souls. And I think this is where we go, yes, praise be to God. God saves people through his word. But I don't think it's what he's saying here. He's talking to the Christian. Let me ask you something. How would the word of God save our souls as Christians? How would it rescue us? The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. You see, the means of the way that God has prescribed that we grow in Christ is through his word. It's like if you are an athlete, we got so many talented teenagers in here, whether it's dance line or cheer and all kinds of stuff. I see things they do, it blows my mind. They're talented. But you know what? If somebody came along and said, hey, I'd love to be a part of this group. What do I need to do? And they're just terrible. They never advance. And you go, hey, you know what? I hate to tell you this, but you got to come to practice if you're going to get any better. Hey, I hate to tell you this, but you gotta exercise. 
hey, I hate to tell you this, but you got to put in a little here and there. So many Christians are in a place of neutrality and you go, hey, are you taking steps to ask God's grace to help you develop a rhythm of being in the word of God, of being under his leadership, under his teaching, under his influence? Apart from that, there is no Christian growth. None. You see, we close out here. We take heed to the command. We submit to the power of the word. Look at how he finishes this section. It's sobering, isn't it? He speaks of the judgment of God. He says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. One day during basketball season, um, my son takes after me and left his practice jersey at the uh, gym. But he's a lot better than I was. I left it every day, I think. But uh, he just does it once a season, so he's doing great. But we went back and uh, went in and talked to uh, Coach Arnold. And Jason said, hey, I got the trick. You know, we went into his office, and they had the coolest setup in his office I have ever seen because we looked on a TV screen, and we saw everything that happened in that gym the day he lost his jersey. It was amazing. I was like, there he is. There he's running. And then it got to the very, it got to the real fun moment. Practice was over and we're like, aha, where is it at? <laughs> and we started seeing it. And there was a place where we saw it in his hand and we saw it move over here and we saw it go down. And then there was another dude right next to it. And I was like, aha, he might've got it, but he didn't. It just stayed right there. It stayed right there. You see, we looked at a camera and all of a sudden we had the ability to see things that nobody in that gym saw that day. You see, we can fool a lot of people, can't we? It's easy to be self-deceived. It's easy to be hypocritical. It's easy to be in a fight when you get to church and the moment the door opens, everything's rosy. It's easy back in the day when the wall phone was there in the house and, and you know, the whole family's mad and screaming at each other and someone calls and it's like, hello. It's easy, it's easy, it's easy, it's easy. But take comfort in the fact that God works by his grace through the power of his spirit and be alert to the fact that he knows and sees all. He knows exactly where you are today. Today, look to him, look to him. Closing this morning, Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And then he says something interesting. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's, it's, it's healthy to be reminded of the yoke. A yoke is... One man said, is a heavy wooden bar that fits over the neck of an ox so that it can pull a cart or a plow. The yoke could be put on one animal or it could be put shared between two animals. In a shared yoke, one of the oxen would often be much stronger than the other. The stronger ox was more schooled in the commands of the master. And so it would guide the other according to the master's commands by coming into the yoke with the stronger ox. The weaker ox could learn to obey the master's voice, but this is different. We come into a yoke with Christ. The only way to walk in that yoke is to learn obedience and faith.
And aren't you encouraged today that the stronger, his yoke is easy. You see, sometimes you read about these yokes and they would be put around the animal and they would be rough and they would be hard and they would hurt and they would chafe all over the neck and cut. But, but sometimes there would be a gracious, gracious master who would make sure the yoke was easy. The yoke didn't have that kind of abrasiveness. Do you realize this morning, you're either in a yoke with Christ or you're in a yoke with your flesh or the things of the world? And if you're not resting in Christ, don't be deceived today. You're walking in bondage to something. But aren't you thankful that the one who's supreme over the world, the one who's the creator of the universe, invites you by his grace to be in yoke with him, to learn from him. And he is lowly and gentle. And he's the only one that can give us rest. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that you care about our lives. Lord, this is uh, such a amazing subject. I pray, God, that we would meditate and really pray about how we apply this in our own hearts and lives. But Lord, I see this warning. I see this urging. I see this, this truth about your word. And oh God, I pray we would see the connection between spiritual rest and your perfect word. And I pray, oh God, that like James prescribes, that we would receive the word with meekness, with humility. Thank you, God, that you're able to rescue us. And thank you, God, you're able to keep your people on the road of persevering and endurance. God, I pray we wouldn't be apathetic. I pray we would respond today with belief. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You'd stand with me. In these last moments, Charlie's gonna be in the hallway to my right, and uh, maybe today you're thinking, I don't know. I don't know um, if I've ever come into true spiritual rest. I don't know if I've ever been truly saved. Today, I wanna encourage you, if that's the thought of your heart, it's amazing how God's word works to, to convict it. God brings faith through his word. And, and today it's the kindness of God that's calling you, calling you. He, he's calling you to rest. He's calling you to, to go away from the weariness of religion, the weariness of burdens. And he's calling you to rest upon him. And a Christian, maybe today you've just, you're not walking in, the, in, in light of the joy of who you are in Christ. And today as you've heard the word, the word is just calling you. The power of the spirit's calling you through the word to just walk by faith. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our confidence of forgiveness is because Christ worked for us. If our confidence is in ourselves, we never have a chance to be at peace because he's the one that worked for us. We can rest in it and we can trust it. We can exhale, but we also have the grace to walk in him. So today, wherever you are, turn to Jesus. Let's go before the Lord in prayer as Mike plays. If you need to pray with someone, Charlie's available. Let's go to the Lord.
Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the chance we've had today just to look at it. And I pray, oh God, we'd be changed by it. I pray by your grace, we'd respond with an attitude of belief. And Lord, I pray as we leave that our hearts would be amazed at the goodness and the greatness of Jesus. And Lord, I thank you that you worked for us 